as you can imagine, the 40-year wedding anniversary means there were a lot of things happening that year in our lives. Um, Nancy and I married on the first available weekend date after my graduation from Eastern Nazarene College. You know, you have to plan those things because when you're graduating from college, there's like 20 of your friends who are also getting married, right? And so you have to sort of negotiate for those dates. And so uh, 7-Eleven was our first available date and also reminds me that every time I drive past the 7-Eleven store, I think of our anniversary. It also marks 40 years in ministry for us. After Nancy and I were married, we drove together to to Michigan where we helped another pastoral couple start a Christian school. And I was uh, a youth pastor and a worship leader in addition to uh, a middle school teacher uh, that first year. But one of the things you need to know about Nazarene pastors in general is that no one becomes a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene unless they believe at their core what I'm going to preach this morning. This is sort of an, an ode to 40 years, but it also fits perfectly in the school of sharing. And I've been hinting, more than hinting, at exactly this for the last two weeks running. I've been talking about this experience of God and his work in our hearts very specifically for the last two weeks. And today, I just want to just articulate the doctrine of holiness very, very clearly so that you understand why the Church of the Nazarene exists. Apart from this doctrine, we don't have a reason to exist. Other than this doctrine, we're just generic Christians, like plenty of Christians. But this is, this is something distinctive about who we are. We're a church that believes, as many do, that every human person needs the saving grace of God to rescue them from their innate tendencies towards selfishness and sin, to forgive them for their sinful acts, and to renew them in the image of God. We use language like this. Ask forgiveness for your sins. Invite Jesus by the Holy Spirit to live in your life. Declare that Jesus is going to be your Lord and Master. Follow his ways. And we believe on good biblical authority that when persons do this, they are born in a new way, a spiritual way, and have the opportunity to please God and enjoy the promised inheritance of all the saints, which is eternal life in heaven. And most Christian churches believe something like that in one form or another. There's nothing distinctive about that belief. Baptist churches, charismatic churches, Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches, lots of churches believe what I've just articulated. But the distinctive difference of the Church of the Nazarene is an emphasis on this foundational doctrine. And I'm highlighting this just to help you understand why we exist. Now, I'm not saying that other churches don't believe something like this. If you were to read Charles Stanley's book, The Wonderful Spiritual Life, Baptist Pastor, he would talk about life in the spirit in ways that are very similar to what the Church of the Nazarene believes. But theologically, he, arrived, he arrives there in different ways, and the emphasis isn't quite the same. 
In the Church of the Nazarene, we would say that this doctrine is foundational, is fundamental to the Christian faith. Old time Nazarenes talked about the doctrine of holiness or the experience of entire sanctification. And I like the phrase heart holiness. You know, I've been hinting about this transformational work of God over the last several weeks. It's a foundation for our sharing. What does the Bible teach about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer after that person has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Well, I'd like to begin in the Old Testament and share an Old Testament model which finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. There are two particular passages I draw your attention to. First is Ezekiel 11, beginning in verse 17. Listen to this prophetic announcement. Therefore say, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Again, in Ezekiel 36, at a slightly different point in Israel's history, this is the prophetic announcement of God. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In these two prophetic statements, God is promising to do a work within the very heart of the Jewish people. In Ezekiel 11, he's addressing people who are returning from exile. In Ezekiel 36, he's addressing the entire nation, assuring them of restoration. In both instances, he's talking in terms of heart surgery. If these people are going to be able to please God, there will have to be a change of heart. Something will have to be different on the inside. It's not just dressing up the external appearance, the practices, the things that we do on the outside. There has to be a change in the very core of who they are. The author of scripture asks, can a leopard change his spots? And the implied answer is no. But God can transplant a new heart into the center of his creatures and they can love him and follow his decrees once God has transformed the heart. Heart transplant is radical surgery. I mean, you know that, right? This isn't rocket science. Oh yeah, heart surgery is. It's not, it's not putting tubes in your ears 15 minutes and you're out. It's, it's not having a callus cut off your foot or a wart removed from your wrist. Heart transplant impacts every fiber of a person's health and being. It takes time. Time for the surgery, time for the healing. Heart transplant is a big deal. 
And God is addressing Israel in a prophetic kind of way, saying he is going to need to do this if, if Israel is ever going to please him or be useful to him. In fact, you can almost hear frustration in the voice of God in this same Ezekiel passage in Ezekiel 36. Listen to what God says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes." Do you hear what he's saying? I'm not cleaning you up, Israel, for your benefit. You're just giving me a bad reputation around the town. If people are ever going to really know who I am, I'm going to have to do something to you folks to clean you up so that you actually reflect who I am. Because until this heart surgery takes place, until there is a new heart in you, everything you do while carrying my name profanes my reputation. So you're worse than no good to me until I do something in the center of who you are. God wants for us, desires for us, new hearts, hearts of flesh that beat for others and for him. And the formation of those hearts is a huge priority for God, which leaves the question, is it a huge priority for us? Nazarenes believe this must be a huge priority for each of us. Having God forgive us of our sins is a wonderful thing. Having the assurance of heaven is a wonderful thing. Getting the gift of the Holy Spirit is a wonderful thing. But we aren't particularly useful yet if our hearts are still stone. We aren't particularly useful if we do not have the capacity to love others around us. We aren't useful to the kingdom if we remain self-absorbed. We need, we must have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to enable us to love. We need the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts so they can be turned from stone to flesh. If we're going to have the capacity to love others in a way that brings glory to God, we must have this transformation of heart. We must have this kind of surgery. And that's what we mean when we talk about heart holiness. We're talking about a new heart a heart of flesh that beats for God and others, a heart that has the capacity to love others in true and righteous ways, a heart that is able to put the best interests of others before my own, a heart that honestly loves God and seeks to serve others as a way of serving him. You say, well, what, what does that kind of love look like? Paul gives it this kind of a title. In 1 Corinthians 12, 31b, Paul says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. You know the verses that follow. 
Paul is joining into a controversy in the Corinthian church. Ecstatic utterances have been a part of the religious culture of that town. Not necessarily Christian, but part of the Greek mystery religions. There's controversy over the speaking of tongues in the Corinthian church. And this controversy has popped up in the church there. And Paul's trying to be diplomatic from a distance. And in, this, in the middle of his teaching about spiritual gifts, he drops in this passage and tells us very, very specifically what the most important thing is. More important than any other thing, what, what's the most excellent way forward? What's the most important thing? And, and I know we co-opt these verses and read them at weddings because there's a lot of love language in them. And we think of love and weddings together. But friends, this 1 Corinthians 13 passage has nothing at all to do with weddings. It's not about weddings. It's about transformation of heart and life lived in the overflow of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. These verses defined the nature of the kind of love we're to demonstrate to one another as the normal state of affairs for Christians. This is the definition of it. Here's 1 Corinthians 13. I'll start from the beginning of the chapter. If I speak in the tongues of angels or men but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And here's the definition of the kind of love that must reside in transformed hearts if we're going to be able to be the ambassadors of Christ in this world. This is the definition, verse four. Love is patient. Are you still with me? Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And you know how the chapter ends, right? And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the quality of the love that ought to reside in our hearts for our family members, for our neighbors, for those with whom we work. This is the goal for us. Less than this is less than Christian. Love is patient. Finding yourself frequently impatient? Why is that? You ought to make sure you understand why that is. Love is kind. Are you mean-spirited? I don't mean to your kids or your spouse. I mean to anyone. Why are you mean-spirited? 
if you are mean-spirited. Love does not envy. Are you envious of those who have more than you have? Why? Why is it hard to be happy with what you have? Are you always overspending in order to get what others have so you can feel happy? Or do you think that overspending will bring you happiness? Love doesn't boast. Bragging, bragging, bragging. Bragging about what you've done, about what your kids have done. Does this bragging hide a bitter root of insecurity? Or are you just insensitive to those around you who can't do as much as you can? Love doesn't boast. Love isn't proud. Pride is the opposite of humility. Pride believes that everything I have is the result of my own work and that I deserve all that I have. Humility understands that God gives opportunity and that health and opportunity play a huge role in anything I have. And all that I have are gifts from God anyway, so why would I be proud? Love does not dishonor others. How do you speak about others when they're not present? Remember, gossiping is a failure of love. I mean, why would I ever speak poorly of someone that I love? We Christians, we wouldn't do that. We, we protect the Achilles heel of others, right? You remember those final words, always protects? We're not easily angered. I mean, love is not easily angered. How easy is it to provoke you to anger? What do you do when you're angry? Does the spirit help you control your anger or do you just let it loose? Love keeps no record of wrongs. I'm sure you know people who keep score, right? This person did this, 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 and this to me. How do you expect me to get along with them after this, 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 this? It's like they've rehearsed this litany and it's in their head. It comes out the same way every time. If they would only rehearse the scriptures the way they rehearse their grudges, their lives could be changed. True forgiveness chooses to stop rehearsing the wrongs done to us. As long as you are keeping records, you haven't really forgiven. I'm not saying that there aren't some hurts that might actually be impossible to forget. I, I'll grant you that because it's not true to say you haven't forgiven unless you forget. That's just not true. There are some hurts that are so deep you can never forget. But you can choose to stop rehearsing them. You can choose to stop bringing them up every chance you get. You can choose to bury the whole hatchet rather than leave the handle out of the ground so you can grab it when you need it again. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, when we talk in these kind of terms, it should be clear and obvious to us that we are not talking about a human kind of love that naturally occurs to us, right? We don't have this kind of love in us. 
We're too easily irritated. We're too impatient. We can't, we can't manufacture this on our own. And that's why we call this a doctrine of holiness. Because what we believe is, is that the Holy Spirit can so fill us, can so transform our hearts, that he is able to love through us in exactly this kind of way. It's the transformational work. It's the presence of the Spirit in us that loves others. And if we find ourselves performing at less than that, that drives us to our knees and says, Spirit, I need a fresh touch from you so that I can be this kind of person in the relationships that are mine because this is what you desire from me. This is the only way I'm useful to you in the kingdom of God. And that's all of what this prophecy from Ezekiel is about. It's about having a new heart, a different heart, a heart that beats in symphony with, in synchronous action with the heart of God. That kind of love in us. I'm afraid that we, because we have found it difficult to love in this way, have just decided that, well, God really didn't mean any of that. He doesn't really expect that of me. He should know that's impossible from me. But you remember that Jesus says, no piece of the law is going to fall away, right? No part of scripture is going to disappear because we don't think we can measure up to it. This is God's desire for us. That we by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us, love well. Do you remember the passage from 1 John at the beginning of the service? If you say you love God, but don't love your brother and sister, you're a liar. He's just that much in your face, isn't he? How on earth can you pretend to love God who you can't see if you can't love the brother and sister who's right in front of you that you can see? And he's not saying, oh, you will innately just be able to love them. You'll be able to tolerate anything, anyone. He's not saying that. He's saying that by the power of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit in you, as you yield your life to the sovereignty of God, as you agree with him, in Paul's way, the most excellent way to live is to live by the love that he makes possible in us by the presence of his spirit. So many of us have tried, failed, and just given up. And so we linger on with hearts of stone in our chests. And with them, our petty squabbles and our divisions and our judgments of others and all of that stuff keeps us from being any use to the kingdom of God. And the tragedy is many of us don't care that much. It's not that big a deal because stone hearts don't care that much about others. Stone hearts are consumed with themselves, keeping the needs of others out. Stone hearts don't permit others to have expectations of them. But you and I, you and I who know the word of the Lord, have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we know that he wants more for us. He wants better for us. 
He wants us to live in the richness of relationships that he has for us that are possible when we give up control of our lives to him. When we invite his spirit to fill us and to love others through us. And when, on a daily basis, we discover that we're having difficulty loving after the recipe that we've heard, we ask the Spirit to help us and to forgive us. I think that's the key to it. The key to it is when I discern, when the Holy Spirit reveals to me that I am not acting in loving ways, in ways that are consistent with the definition that we've just heard from Scripture, when I'm starting to be braggy about all that I've done or all that I am, when I start to be gossipy behind people's back, when I start to judge others and point the finger because I don't think that they're doing as well as I am or how I believe or what they should do according to my understanding of Scripture, when I start doing that stuff, the Holy Spirit will faithfully remind me that I'm not loving well. And then we have to humbly ask forgiveness and ask the Spirit to renew the presence of the Spirit in us and enable us to love again and again and again as many times as it takes until our actions are consistently loving. Now, you and I, we know when we're about to walk into situations that are going to be inherently difficult for us to express love, right? There are some times when we're caught off guard and we step into some situation and we get beat up and we're thinking, yeah, and, and, we're, and we're defensive about that and we might not react the best way and we have to apologize and say we're sorry and ask the Spirit to help us love. But there are plenty of other times when we're we're going to this family reunion, or we're going to this, or we're going to that, and we know in advance there's going to be trouble, right? We know that. So what does that mean? We avoid it, or we get down on our knees before we go, and we say to the Father, Father, I'm in over my head on this one, and these people are people I need to love. And so you can name them in the quiet of your prayer closet, you're gonna to have to help me love Aunt Mary, and you're gonna to have to love me, help me love Uncle Jack, and you're gonna to have, to have to help me, Lord. You're gonna to have to put your love for them in me so that I can consistently love the people that you want to have loved. I'm convinced that the ineffectiveness of the church of Jesus Christ today is because it's a failure of love. That we are too excited about being right and less excited about being useful to the kingdom of God. That we are too excited of judging everyone around us and less enthusiastic about analyzing our own behavior in light of the definition of love that God requires of us. And that unless we humbly repent of our arrogance and pride and invite the Holy Spirit to renew us again, we will find ourselves in a place like Israel of utterly no use to God.
I don't for a second want to downplay the importance of our salvation. Nothing is more important than that. Nothing is more important than having our sins forgiving, than having the Holy Spirit enter our lives, than becoming new creatures in Christ. Nothing is more important than that. But it just can't stop there. That's just the first step in the journey. And the journey that Jesus has in mind for us is a journey of fullness, of meaning, of purpose, and of being used by him so that the world can also know that they are loved by him. And that can only happen as children of God submit themselves to him and say, Heavenly Father, so fill me with your spirit. So fill me with your love for others that I can be of some earthly use to you in gratitude for all that you've done for me. We're going to pray in just a moment, and then we're going to sing a song, Oh, for a heart to praise my God. And if while we're singing this hymn this morning, uh, you would like to pray, of course, you're welcome to pray at these altars, and you're welcome to come while we're singing and pray here. Um, but I would encourage you to linger with 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 through this week. Take this passage, chew it up, live there, and ask the Holy Spirit, search me and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. And I promise you, the Holy Spirit will be faithful to do that. For we need his fresh touch and his infilling as we never have. Heavenly Father, you reveal your heart to us when you show us how to love. Your expression of love for us meant Jesus leaving heaven, being born as a baby, living and dying so that our sins could be forgiven and our relationship with you reconciled. You gave everything you had because you loved us. And now you invite us into that same kind of love. I pray, Lord, that you would transform our hearts from stone to flesh, that our hearts would beat with a love for others as yours does. Accomplish your work in us, we pray. For we ask this in your name, Lord Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing, Oh, for a heart to praise my God? Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free. 
a heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me. A heart resigned, submissive, meek, my great Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord, O oh my soul, shout His praise never-ending. Praise the Lord forevermore. A humble, lowly, contrite heart, believing true and clean, which neither life nor death can part from him who dwells with A heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Shout his praise, never ending. Praise the Lord forevermore. Heavenly Father, Accomplish your work in us. Speak your truth to our hearts. Fill us anew with your Holy Spirit. Enable us to love you as we ought to love you. And to love one another as we ought to love one another. That our hearts might be a reflection of your heart. And now to him who has begun a good work in you. May he carry it on to full completion. That you may glorify God now and always. Amen.